Hi, and welcome back to Moonbeaming. We have such a great show today. We're going to get right into it because we have a very beautiful conversation with someone I admire a lot. Today on the show, we have Ashton Berry. If you are not familiar with Ashton or their work, you're in for a treat. I am a really, really big admirer of Ashton's thoughts of what they share on social media. That's how I came across Ashton. I'm not even sure how I found her, but I was so impressed and inspired and also really affirmed. Have you ever read what someone shares and you have this simultaneous sigh of relief because you're not the only one who thinks this way and awe because you could never express such complicated issues or ideas with such poise. Well, that is how I felt when I came across Ashton's work on Instagram and their handle is The Collectress. We'll put it in the show notes. I wanted to interview Ashton in particular this year because to me, Ashton really embodies one, the archetype of the chariot, this trailblazer, someone who is creating their own path out of their unique gifts that looks very unique. Like it just is singular, I guess you could say. And I love finding people like that because they give me hope. And again, they inspire me that we don't have to do one thing. We don't have to compartmentalize ourselves or squish ourselves down or contort ourselves. And Ashton always shows up as who she is. She's very authentic and it comes across. And that's like the through line, I suppose, of Ashton's work. And to me, that's also very chariot. And also, I just think it's where we're going as a culture. We aren't meant to be just one thing, but we're always meant to be who we are. Even if that changes, even if it's evolving, even if we're transforming, even if we're different, And I wanted to have someone on the show who embodies that really, really beautifully and really strongly. So we had a really great conversation. We talked about anger. We talked about boundaries. We talked about restaurants and public spaces and gentrification and Ashton's work and so, so much more. You're really going to love this conversation. And before we get into the conversation... Before I forget, I wanted to read you Ashton's official bio. Ashton Berry, she, her, is a lot of things. For one, she's someone who has made a point of it being as hard as possible to condense who they are into two small paragraphs, but here we are. Yeah, hard relate to that. I'm sure many of you are nodding and you can relate to that. Ashton is an activist, educator, Sommelier, mixologist, sociologist, beverage consultant, human being, and creator of not just cocktails, but change. 
By 25, she had a decade of experience in hospitality, and by now, she's been the beverage director of half a dozen spots and worked with many brands you've heard of. In that time, Ashton's also earned Imbibe Magazine's 2019 Bartender of the Year and Observer's 50 Most Influential People in Dining and Nightlife and 50 Best Bars 2020 Icon Award. I had no idea. We didn't talk about any of this, by the way. (laughs) It's amazing, right? Barry has developed an intersectional framework for building spaces that has culminated in her present-day focus of consent-based communication and building open, honest spaces where employees are people that can do more than simply survive. In 2018, her creative content agency, Radical Exchange, was born and she launched the yearly multi-day symposium Resistance Served to celebrate and contextualize the contributions of the African diaspora in hospitality. She's been recognized for her advocacy work as a member of the world's 50 Next, and in that time, she still managed to find time to read, travel, and track down amazing shoes. We've got range, people. We've got range. I give you my wonderful conversation with Ashton Berry. So today we have the one and only Ashton Berry. Thank you for having me. I really love your work. I am always just, you're so creative and I love the way that that shines through in your post on social media. I appreciate that there's a mutual admiration that we can come into this conversation with. That always feels good. Ashton, how would you describe you and your work now? You know, I would describe my work as being education focused. I think if you would ask me a few years ago, I would have said it was activism focused, but I would say now it's really education focused and it's about connecting, showing people the connective tissue between the way that we kind of live our everyday lives and the structural issues of the world. I feel is my calling of trying to get people to understand how The interpersonal is still so political and so still in conversation always with what's happening structurally. I think there is a similarity or a parallel when you realize that you are simultaneously so much more than whatever identity you've been born into while also being so influenced by it, right? Like being so much in the system. And I was wondering if you had a moment where that was really highlighted for you, either recently or years ago, or? I think I've always, and I don't know if it's a personality thing, but I think I've always felt as if I am informed by the system, but the system does not control me. And um, my mom would say from like a young age, I would tell people what I want to do for a living. And adults would be like, oh, that's a really great dream. And my mom was like, when you were about nine, you started saying, those aren't dreams. Those are my goals. And she was like, you would be very like insistent on this with people specifically. I think I was responding to a lot of my life being one of the 
I don't even want to say few, but oftentimes being because of where I was academically, even if my outside world outside of school was black in school, I was often one of the few black people in the room or in these type of spaces until I'm, I got into high school. I was often one of the few black people in these higher kind of education classes or honors programs. And so the response was kind of this, this, I could tell was kind of this stay in your lane kind of, you know, it was rather than taking what I said seriously and saying like, oh, wow, then you should be doing this or you should take this or you should think about taking these AP courses the way that other kids were. It was always like, those are great dreams as if because I came from a single parent household, I had already made it to the peak of what I was going to be able to give and contribute to society. And I think that, um, I really held on to the idea that, and I think I held on to it differently than the way that I embody it now. But I think coming up, I really had kind of like a chip on my shoulder. And my mom used to say, if Ashton's going to make it, you know, know that she'll make it just by pure will or in spite of you. You know, my mom used to tell a teacher, the worst thing you can do is tell my daughter she can't do nothing and piss her off (laughs) because she'll make it her mission to become like really, really good at it and become the person who's awarded for it. And I think that I kind of felt like I had, I don't even know if I felt like I had something to prove. I felt like I was a representative in so many ways of the ways in which I knew that a lot of the people looking at me sideways or having opinions was really about the fact that they didn't feel like my mom was capable or my father was capable of raising a child as single parents because both of my parents, when they raised me, were single parents. They were never together. So, yeah, I think that that really kind of always made me want to be like, and let me show you what I can do. The amount that I relate to what you just said is so different because we're so different. But I, too, have had that. I actually think anger, frustration can be really useful fuel. And I'm wondering if when or if ever that needing to prove something dissipated in your motivations. I think I've had different, I've been, I was angry for a good portion of my life. I would say like till my probably 23, 24, 25, like I was angry. And the way that anger displayed itself was very different, right? Sometimes it looked like hypervigilance. Sometimes it looked like recklessness. And sometimes it looked like um, passionate advocacy. It It looks very different in different parts of my life. But I think when it became to dissipate was when honestly... I stopped running as, as someone, and I've talked people, you know, who follow me kind of know this, or I've heard me on other podcasts as someone who is from a family that has intergenerational trauma, not just because we're black, but because um, I had a family that had multiple generations of domestic violence. And I just saw it replicated in, like, it seemed to be replicating not only that, but like having children really young, which I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with having children young if that's something you plan for. But I, part of this was that I was running, right? And I just was running. And it wasn't like I was running from anything. I was just, I felt like I needed to keep momentum to get, prevent myself from being sucked in right into a life or into a system or into an automation of what I saw, even if it wasn't 
domestic violence. It was other things that I thought were really unhealthy in my family that I did not want to fall into. And when I stopped running, right, which is something that I later realized I learned from my mother, when I stopped running, and not when I say running, I don't just mean in the physical sense, I mean in the emotional sense and everything. When I stopped running, I was able to really not just acknowledge because I knew I was angry, but I was able to acknowledge the complexity of my anger, right? I think we so much in society say people are enraged or they're in anger and we make it really, really simple. And what we don't like to talk about is how complex anger is. And as someone who has, again, lived a life where they were angry for a lot of it, I began to be comforted by my anger because I knew it was a motivator, a powerful motivator to change and transform whatever it is I didn't like about my life. And when I stopped running from that anger and began to ask questions about it, I think what happened was that it gave myself the ability and opened me up to having more grace and care and for myself first, right? And absolutely for others, but I was really harsh on myself. And so, yeah, it began to dissipate. And I think some of that dissipation came from me coming back to myself. Also, as someone who's a survivor, I think I leaned into anger as a way to get over or get over the hump of my assaults. It was easier to lean into that because I didn't have the emotions they tell you you're supposed to have, which is... You're supposed to be sad. You're supposed to be thin. You're supposed to feel. I didn't feel broken. I felt angry as hell. I felt as if I want to go buy a gun and I want to go on. I want to be. I want to be Liam Neeson out of taking. Like I. That's how I felt. And so when I really began to unpack all the reasons why I was anger, and when I began to validate myself, to tell myself that the things that I'm angry about are. It's. It's not. Without anybody would be angry. Anybody would be really upset, you know, about these things. But when I once I addressed that, it it made it easier for me to say, I think I went through a period where it was weird, where I don't think many people even at the end of my, what I think of like my anger phase would have even characterized me as angry because the the type of anger I had was such a like a exacting and low energy type of, you know what I mean? Anger, it wasn't in your face or... Was it like hiding out? I don't know if it was hiding out. I think it was just so... Like a low hum? Yeah, it was just like a low hum, right? Like people were aware that if you got on my bad side, you might see another side of me. But it wasn't something that like was, like I can say really when I was 18, 19, 20, you could tell that I was that there was a part of me, I was a bubbly person, but I was an angry person. And I think the difference is that like after being assaulted, that bubbliness about me, it, it changed the way my, that my anger showed up. <laughs> Cause I didn't want to be bubbly anymore. Right. Like there was nothing that made me want to be this exuberant bubbly person. And when I say that now, I know a lot of people will kind of probably hear that and be like bubbly, but like people who know me and think I was, I'm, I was always strong-willed and passionate, but I was also really bubbly um, and playful and silly. And, you know, and and so, yeah, I think it dissipated then. And I think therapy helped a ton with that. And not using therapy as a short-term kind of support, but getting in therapy and saying, I remember when I got into therapy the first time, it just didn't match with the therapist, but I got into it again when I was 27 
And I said to the therapist, I said, I'm not here to fix anything. I'm here because I know that I'm not the person that I want to be. And that doesn't mean that I don't have good bones or good structures, but I know that I am lacking how to create new models of how to be in this world. And I am feeling like if I don't learn how to do this, one day I'm going to snap. And the consequences of me snapping, I am not going to be able to recover from. There's so much. One, thank you so much for sharing this. It's so clarifying and relatable. Anger as complex, I love because it is. It's grief. It's a protector. It's righteous rage. As you said, often it's it's the only solution. Of course I'm angry. Someone treated me this way or this was stolen from me or whatever. It's confusion. I found that a lot of my anger it at the bottom of it was confusion. I just couldn't make sense of it. So it's like our inner child being like, WTF, I don't even know. I also love this interpretation of anger as a boundary being crossed, right? And that's a very normal, so important. It is going to tell you the depth of what you felt a boundary was crossed. And it sometimes pops up as like a helper before we can process what's even happening. When you're like, why do I feel short at that person? Or why am I feeling prickly? Even the spectrum of anger, which could start at like irritation or something like that, right? So I love that you brought up the complexity of anger because I think often anger is flattened. I also, when thinking about who is supposed to be angry and who can't be angry and what societally acceptable expressions of anger are and who. Yes. Oh, Ooh. Oof. I, I mean, absolutely. I think that when you just said like what's societally, you know, acceptable, I think not only is it, even though obviously the angry black woman is a trope, But I think for me, I wasn't really afraid of falling into that trope at a certain point in my life. So I was okay with you naming me as angry and being like, and and now what? Right? And, And you've called me angry and now what? And I remember when I started doing that, how taken aback people were. That I had robbed them of the shaming tool to shame me for being angry. And I remember how powerful that felt. Right. To be like, yes, you're absolutely right. I'm furious. And what's your response? And often they didn't have one. Right. I think our societal responses are that women, first of all, femme people shouldn't be angry. But I think also there's another connotation that anger inherently means abusive. And I think that as someone who was raised in abusive spaces, and as someone who's also done a lot of work on themselves, I'm able to tell the difference of someone expressing that they are anger, even if they're not showcasing it in the best way, and someone who is actually trying to put me in danger, right? And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be accountable for how we display anger, but we also have to remember we have 
uh, as a society rob people of any space to practice how to be angry. We don't teach children or young adults or teenagers or anybody what are appropriate displays of their anger. We teach them to mute it. And so when I finally realized I was angry and that people had been offended by my displays of anger or that I had harmed people with my displays of anger, what I had was a lot of anger about the confusion of the lack of communication about it. Right? And not because people who you harm own you labor. That's not what I'm saying. They don't. But I do think if you're in community with people, it is a role to allow people to practice how they are going to appropriately express express um, emotions. And anger is an appropriate emotion. <laughs> I think I think that at society we have an underlying thinking that anger is not appropriate, and it's only appropriate when something egregious has been done, when someone has died, when someone has physically harmed you. And the reality of it is that that's so unfair, specifically in a society where we're taught to do harm and hide our hand. Yeah. Maybe people's, you know, response to be anger would be more appropriate if our first go-to wouldn't be to dismiss it and honor it as not true. For sure. Anger as intuition you spoke about getting to a place of acceptance or grace with yourself and your anger as solidifying. You may be feeling like you don't need to prove anything or prove as much. Was that a relief? Did your work change? Did your motivations change? I think a lot changed. Honestly, and I don't think that it was necessarily I was trying to prove anything to the world. I think honestly, I was in this toxic re I was in this toxic relationship with my parents where I was still trying to prove to them that I was worthy of being loved. I was worthy of their attention. And I was, you know, some people they may say, Oh, that's silly, you were twenty seven and you were it, it wasn't conscious, but unconsciously, my behavior was still working to prove that. I was like 34. Like, <laughs> What happened is it opened up the door for me to know that something that I always knew, which is that I was loved, but it allowed me to form relationships where I could actually feel that love in the way that made me feel as if I was being held in love and being validated. And not in a way that was I was being told I was being loved, but in every interaction with familiar my family, I was leaving feeling as if I was unwanted or not worthy enough. I think it, what it did was it offered an invitation that my life could look different and that my life already looked so different from many people I grew up. I have an incredibly blended family that is a little complicated, you know, with adopted family members and step family members, which I don't consider step, but just to clarify for people. So there was a lot of kind of where do I belong, right? Because, you know, this is who my family is by blood, but here are the people who have raised me. Right. And now there's conflict here and things. And what, what it called me to do is say, your life has never looked what people say family should look like. And most don't. Right. And you don't, there is no need for you to try to perform these kind of niceties or performances of 
what family looks like in order to maintain that you are worthy or that you're good. Because when people hear that you don't talk to a parent or parents, um, their first assumption is that the reason for that is something extremely severe and traumatic, meaning they tried to murder you or assaulted you or something. And their other assumption is that you must be totally fucked up from it. And I was, for the first time, mentally okay. (laughs) And when I say mentally okay, I want to be clear. I want to rephrase that. I had kind of been told my whole life, you know, by family members, blah, 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 oh, you need to go therapy, you need to go therapy. And it was kind of this taunting thing that that they would do because if they weren't actually interested in me going to therapy, if they were, they would have set that up and structured that, you know, but it was something that I heard from the age of 10. And being that I now know that I was an undiagnosed autistic person with ADHD, you know, it would have been great had someone taken that initiative to do that. But what I have come to realize is it was one of their ways of trying to keep me in line in terms of my behavior rather than like saying, hey, this child obviously needs something different than other children do. And we probably need to like seek support in trying to do that. And I think that what I realized when I specifically when I stopped speaking to my mother is in all honesty, um, I have suffered from a severe, I've I've had really bad insomnia for most of my life, but it increased at the age of 15, which is when I went to go live with my father. And that's when it got really bad. And it was, I still have bouts. I had one recently, but it was pretty bad. The moment that I, the week that I stopped speaking to my mother was the first time that I was able to get to sleep regularly without sleep meds. Wow. And my therapist was like, you should take that as your sign because what it means is that your body has been dysregulated by this relationship. And you can settle. And you can settle. And suddenly this calmness started to come in. And it was scary at points, right? I felt guilty. Why do you feel so good? Why do you feel? But I did. I felt free. I felt good. It was like, this stressor that had been on me suddenly released. Um, and I, to anybody who is listening to this, I want to be clear. I would not be who I am without Iris Berry. Um, I think she is a dynamic woman. I think that she broke generational curses, even if she didn't break the ones that necessarily I needed her to. And I also am working to try to have a relationship with her because my goal from not speaking to her wasn't to punish her right? For her, for the things, but it was to truly get to a point where I could be healthy. Again, very relatable as someone who is currently on break with my parents after 18 years of water off a duck's back, boundaries, therapy sessions, letters, phone calls, flights, For me, I just came to a point, a calm, settled, non-punitive place from my mind where I, what for me, it was, we're in a chariot year. This is why I wanted to have you on. You're a trailblazer. 
You are not easily definable. You pave your own way. That's very chariot. You see the vision. Even if other people can't, you're headed towards that. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But I will say is for me with uh, the chariot and some of the themes of movement and change, for me, I just had to realize I needed to not be in certain relationships with dynamics and behaviors where the other person couldn't adapt and the other person wasn't willing to try something different and listen to what I needed. I'll share with you really openly. A friend of mine shared this story with me and it really highlighted so much for me about my own certain relationships. She was talking about her family and she said, for years I've been giving these people love and the templates of how to love me and see me. For years I've been giving them lists of what I want for Christmas and where they can send the donations and really exactly letting them know what I need and how I need to be loved and who I am. And I've been taking five steps towards them, seven steps towards them. I've been operating in their world. I've been masking. I've been doing things I don't want to do and watching things I don't want to watch and being there. And I really feel ready for them to take one or two steps towards me. And that really highlighted what I was ready for as well, not just with my family, but with more people in my life. And and I think that's also a very reasonable request. I think it's a super reasonable request. I, I think before I went no contact with my mother, I wasn't in the place to even try to step forward anymore. I had made attempts in the past and they had gone so poorly that I didn't think that I could emotionally take another bout of trying again and it failing. Um, but I think what I realized is that my body was so dysregulated by what were supposed to be core relationships in my life and had been for so long that I really had to take the time to know what is Ashton's baseline, not what are the, what is my baseline so that I could really become in control of who I was as a whole person. And I know that that, again, I know some people are like, what do you know? It really takes a lot of work to learn that at that age to be like, and what I also felt was that I kept playing into a story which is that like whenever I would talk to these people, whether it was my mother, even nowadays when it's when I talk to my father or with other people, I was reverting back to who I was when I had intimate relationships with them. And the last time me and my mom had an intimate relationship was when I was 15 years old. So every interaction, I just became 15-year-old Ashton again, no matter how much work I was doing in other areas of my life and how good it was. I would revert back to these toxic kind of scripts. And that's on me, right? But I didn't know how not to get sucked into it. And so, you know, therapy, having the therapist I had was really great at having someone really work with me to be like, all right, you need to know your baseline. You need to understand 
what a regulated Ashton looks like when she shows up in the world, right? And what I also realized is I kept replicating the re- the toxic relationship I had with certain family members with friendships. Hello. And it was <laughs> and it was triggering, right? Because then you go into the sex and, and I realized like, oh no, this has to stop at every single level. And I I tell people already, I've lived like seven different lives. You know, I don't want people to think that at 27, I suddenly decided to grow. I have been growing all this time that is happening with when I mentioned the different stages of anger, those stages of anger are changing, not only because different things happen in my life, but because I am growing as a person, right? Um, My advocacy work started when I was in college. So being a part of community groups and everything, I'm getting some of this healing work adjacently, even before I commit to therapy full time for years, right? Yeah, I just, I want it to be me and I want it to be me in the moment. I want to be able to take me in the moment as a regulated person into all spaces without fear that I, and, and with a trust that I could trust myself not to revert back to an older version of me without knowing, right? Sometimes you revert back to all yourself yeah. and you know you're doing it. That's different. But I didn't yeah. want it to be a protectionary kind of like unconscious thing that happened. So yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's a whole bunch of things that people don't tell you about that growth process, which is the amount of grief. And I feel like 27, it was me. I had done a lot of work, but I was still holding it in the bag. You know how you have a whole bunch of stuff you need to let go, but you just are like, ah, maybe I'll come back to it. And so you put it in a crate or something. You just put it in the back of your closet. And at 27, it was my therapist going in the closet, pulling it all out and saying, if we're done with this, why do we still have it? Fairy chariot. Pack light. Why do we still have it? And it was hard, but I had to start. I think I had to start creating real boundaries, not the fake ones I used to like to create. I'd be like, I set a boundary. And what I really said was somewhat something like an ultimatum because boundaries are about us and our behavior. They're not about what others do. They're not about controlling what others do. And I like to do a lot of like, well, my boundary is you don't do this. And that's not a boundary. No. So let's talk about your work. Yeah. Let's talk about it. It's changed. You know, it's transformed in ways that I like appreciate. I appreciate that I have the gift to be able to adapt the way that I have. I've been working for myself now for seven years, going on eight. It'll be eight this fall. Congratulations. That feels super good, especially with all the different economies we've had and with all the different, <laughs> you know, and has it always been amazing? No, but have there been many years where it was amazing? Yeah. And I'm just grateful that I've had the freedom to do that. But what do you want to know specifically about my work? I'll start with your foundation because I was drawn to you because of all of the the depth and the intersectionality that you bring in when talking about the hospitality industry. I was a waitress for like, gosh, 12, 13 years all kinds of different places, TGI Fridays to fine dining where you'd like crumb the table, catering, cocktail waitress, like you name it, dishwashing, could be here all day. Anyway, 
I hadn't, I'm going to be honest, I hadn't thought about consciously hospitality as care work. Yeah. Can you want to start with that? Yeah. So, you know, it's so funny because I've been having this conversation for a while. And when I first started having it, people were just kind of like, "Mm, she takes things too seriously. What is she talking about? And I tell people that my work hasn't changed. What has changed is where society is at, right? Let me change that. My message (laughs) pertaining to my work hasn't changed. Society has. I've gotten better at articulating it, but the core, the foundation of it has always been the same. And what I really realized is that hospitality laborers, when I got into it, I've been in hospitality, again, since I was around 15 years old. I was also in retail. And when I began to realize what was different about hospitality versus like retail or a corporate job or working at a not-for-profit was the way in which hospitality laborers were rendered invisible. And it became, the more years I spent doing it full-time, the clearer it became to me, right? That only a few, there was only room for like a chef or maybe a sommelier or maybe a bartender to be visible. But for the most part, the focus was on the fiscal space, the food, the experience, while the laborers were rendered invisible. And I thought that that was really interesting because people discounted the skill that goes into creating an experience. And I don't care if that's not fine dining and just some casual neighborhood bar you're bopping into or not. And I think that today we hear a lot of complaints about how service isn't great and people aren't. And it's because of the way in which hospitality workers have been treated for decades and the ways in which most of this country has unknowingly supported laws that rob them of being able to have basic access to support systems, right? Um, which exhausts them even further. But I think the care work came out of me recognizing that the most valuable part of hospitality is emotional labor. It is the ability for service workers to contort themselves to the emotional needs of the people that they are supporting. And someone might say, oh, well, how much are they doing? You won't believe how many, think about someone who works at a Starbucks. Think about how many orders they take and how many different tones with how many, with so many different people's baggage and of things. I think the average consumer assumes that 90% of, 90% of these interactions are positive. When the reality is that probably a good part of them are neutral, um, but there's a, a many more than we'd like to admit that are not positive. Um, and that might not be directly targeted or towards the service worker, but it, it is definitely generally attached to the baggage that they're bringing in while they do what they think is this innocuous transaction that really has no impact. Well, there's also that saying, don't date someone who doesn't tip, like how people think it's okay to treat waiters or baristas. Well, and I tell people that's because it's class cosplay. Right. Even the people who aren't rich get to feel like they're rich when they're in the dynamic of hospitality professionals more than anybody else. Because the fact of the matter is, is that we don't engage with people who often do what I'll call undesirable jobs. No job is undesirable. I'm using this term and I'm using air quotes to denote the way in which we demean jobs in society that we don't think are valuable or are luxurious. But we a lot of those roles we don't have we don't actually directly interface with those people right 
hospitality is the one job where we are always interfacing with these with these workers and simultaneously saying that if you have to work those jobs it's because you just didn't do better in life you should go work somewhere else right and so i think it's a really interesting conversation about the ways in which people play into power lean into trying to have power over in spaces, even in small, petty ways. This is why we see grown adults yelling at teenagers at a stone cold creamery or a. T- I remember that clip. Right? Where you're like, why is a 40 year old man yelling at a 14 year old child, regardless of what the transition is? But also, why is it heightened? What what is added to this hospitality experience that makes people act as if like like I used to tell my staff, the work we do here is important, but we ain't saving no motherfucking lives. There's no surgery being performed here. There's no like there's we should have pride in our work, but there is no reason we should be creating. And I, I even had to snap myself out of that. I worked at a place that made me have this really intensity that everything was life or death and, and escalate everything. And I remember having to snap myself out of it and be like, uh, uh-uh, you need to leave this place. This is not healthy and no place should operate like this. But I think what people also don't realize is that's a conversation about who used to play, I tell people all the time, white people weren't supposed to work hospitality jobs. Hospitality workers were supposed to be newly freed slaves who had been doing that work for free during slavery, right? Newly formerly enslaved people and then immigrant people, right? The Irish, the Chinese, the Italians who, to be clear, are the white now, but were not white then, right? And so... When I hear these discussions and specifically the outrage, I'm like, because you were never meant to work in these roles. And the issue is, is that when they figured out that they couldn't basically supplement a labor force when we became a service economy, because America is now a service economy, and they realized that they needed more laborers, they needed they needed more bodies. But also when people realized that the amount of money being made in the hospitality industry, it became a game that everybody wanted to be a part of because you needed limited, there were limited barriers of access in terms of technical skills you needed to learn to gain entryway and make a good wage and make a decent living. And, you know, it's part of that reason, which, you know, a lot of people don't know this, that Eventually, we're going to have to recognize how corporations began to push Black people and uh, Latino, specifically Mexican people, out of their businesses in favor of white people, right, to work in those spaces because they became competitive, financially competitive. Wow. You know, a lot of people don't realize the relationship that um, McDonald's had to Black communities. You know, people talk about like, why are there all these bad things? The book franchises really goes over about Black people buying into franchises, but also hiring Black people, the wages, the way the way that it allowed them. It was considered a good job and it was a good job. There's so much there, right? There's history, race, economics, food systems, intimacy, different roles in the layers of class, race, gender, being fed literally, but also spiritually or communally or community-wise. 
hospitality spaces are like third places. There, there's a social thing that talks about the third place or the third space. And it's the, not even the idea, it's a true, is that we predominantly live our lives between two spaces, which is home, which is the first space, and work, which is the second space. For children, they would be school, right? And there's really no one in this world that doesn't spend space in one or two of these spaces. Yes, there are people who are unhoused, but they still have some type of structure which they can generally consider a home, even if it is temporary, right? And they are moving their life between these two spaces. And in between that is the in-between. And those in-between can be churches, community centers. But the reality is, is with the dissolution of community, right, and the rising of gentrification cycles through time, right, people don't hold on to houses for 30, 50 years like they used to. Right, they buy them and then they resell them within a generation. With those with those cycles increasing, what has happened is that we have also lost a sense of long term community building that have third spaces, which means the hospitality have become those new spaces. And let's be clear, hospitality spaces, bars, restaurants, whatever they may be, have always been a part of third space and going between. But now, which is one thing my book's going to talk about, they are the primary third space of 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 people's lives. It's the place where they spend when they're not at home or not at work. And the reason I think that's so important is because while for the consumer that may seem like a one-off interaction that they're having, for the labor, it's a repetitive right experience that is continually happening, which means even if you aren't knowing or getting to know your coffee shop that you go to four days a week in the morning and you only slightly know their names, they absolutely know you. Yes. I can still remember certain customers' orders, but not the but not know their names. Yes, because there's in in it, it it's tied to the fact that hospitality, so much of it, when I talk about the care work, is the same thing that care work in other fields embodies, which is this ephemeral coding, which isn't actually about the verbal exchange, right? Which is the verbal exchange is important, but it is the, that's the shallow part of the language and communication happening in the space. The rest of it is the ephemeral coding of learning someone's script of the way they move, of their tone, of the way that their eyebrow moves, blah, blah, the way, you know what I mean? It's, and I give the example of kind of, if you've ever been in New York and there's a bodega you go to regularly, the guy will look at you, right? If you nod yes, he knows that you're saying you want the usual. And if you, you say, yeah, just do the, do, 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 do. And he's, he's mostly, you're saying a few words, but mostly if you come there regularly, he's going off of your body language. Right. He's like, he's going off of you nodding while you're on the phone and stuff. Right. And people don't think that that's a skill. And it absolutely is. Because imagine the number of scripts you're holding on to. Right. And memorizing to even be to be called unskilled, quote unquote, unskilled, but to be able to deliver what is essentially, while small, a pleasurable experience. Yeah. And that's yeah. like the other kind of part of it that people leave out is how hospitality is this weird thing because it's about, it's a structure that holds the 
politics of society, meaning you can tell exactly where we are within the world in terms of social things by going into yeah. a hospitality business. You can go into three hospitality businesses in the city and you're going to get a pretty good idea of where we are socially, not only by consumer's behavior, by what kind of signage is up, by what you're, you're going to get a very clear, if you're paying attention, of understanding of what's happening in, in, in the community, right? Or even on a larger scale. And we haven't even gotten into front of the house versus back of the house, or I know this is a little bit weird, but my partner also, long history in restaurants, ironically, not so ironically, he's a nurse now, of course, soft, soft skills, care work. It is not uncommon for people from hospitality. This is one of the reasons why I want to do data. It is not uncommon for people from hospitality to get into healthcare roles. It's not uncommon because they both require a lot, many of the same soft skills in terms of caring for individuals and being in tune with the ephemeral coding of the way that people show up. That's so fascinating. I was going to say that. So both of us have our background and especially when we're on vacation, we'll go into a restaurant and we'll know if the restaurant's like a cool, good place to work. We can tell that the workers are supported just like you can tell when someone's like not happy to be working there. And and you can tell because part of the part of the skill that you're building working in hospitality spaces is learning how to read body language. And I tell often this is that I think one of the really things that has that is starting to dissolve is the fact that um, we don't keep people in hospitality spaces long enough to create community or to get that ephemeral coding entrenched. And I think another issue that we're finding is that so many people who live in cities who have had diverse upbringings and lived in communities where they've interacted with a lot of people are getting pushed out of those cities for people who have lived in homogenous areas. And the issue is that those are becoming our new hospitality workers. And the issue with that is that means that they bring a very they bring homogenous scripts. So their ability to actually, and they bring their biases, right? And that doesn't mean that people in city cities don't have biases, but I used to tell people that their cultural competency is something that is absolutely a necessity within hospitality, specifically if you live in a city that is very transient and has a lot of different people coming into it. And often I find people who grew up in suburban areas or more rural areas where if, if they didn't get an opportunity to engage with a lot of different people in college or in some other area, they have homogenous scripts. And so their understanding, they find they struggle and they find issues with people who don't fit into those very narrow boxes. This is also why I think we have a lot of issues and see a lot of issues with uh, servers, specifically the uptick of it, of servers and things calling out uh, people of color for not tipping or, and oftentimes they're like, oh, I left it in cash here or blah, blah. Or we see these instances where like the man swung on this black girl at McDonald's because she didn't give him barbecue sauce, right? It is tied to one, it's tied to the historical narrative and hospitality, but it's also tied to this collision, this cultural collision that we're having with who learns, 
who is forced to learn the scripts of the people who, who they live around and who comes in to eradicate and homogenize the scripts that they live around. And this is one of the reasons why gentrification is so dangerous. And this is one of the reasons why I'm always talking about we have to talk about the role of hospitality spaces in gentrifying neighborhoods. Yeah, that all makes sense. I know there are so many different answers you could give to this question, but where do you see the greatest potential for change and the greatest opportunities in hospitality or through your work or what you're trying to put forth? I'd love to hear where you're at today with that. I I mean, I think honestly, if we stop thinking of hospitality as just a fun thing that we engage in and we start thinking of them as actual community spaces, um, I think that we can begin to have some really important but necessary conversations of how we can actually invest and transform our communities to look the look and feel the way that we want them to. And I think a great example is this, I think it was it was in the Netherlands, I'm forgetting which country, one of the grocery store chains decided to have a slower lane for people who want to be able to talk and have small banter with people in the checkout line. And I think that is not only beautiful, but it shows that they are treating that grocery store as a community, as not just a communal space, but as a, a, a collective, like a space that is has buy-in for both the consumer and the worker. And I think in America, we, we say that we want hospitality spaces to be communal, but that's often not true. It can be true for some spaces, but universally it's not. Um, the truth of the matter is that oftentimes hospitality spaces are extensions of a colonial tool to whether, whether it's intentional or not. And oftentimes by small business owners, it's not intentional, but I'm hoping that my work over the next five years can really help small business owners, one, have more visibility among the conversation about the hospitality sector, um, because right now corporations kind of rule the whole conversation, whether we realize it or not. It doesn't matter that someone got best chef or things like that. The policies, the city, the city, you know, jurisdiction, all of that is being run by corporations. And even though hospitality is predominantly made up, it's 70 percent business owners. Right. Um, and so I'm hoping my work over the next five years really gets us to a point where we can give more visibility to the labor, to small business owners so that people can start reclaiming the, these spaces from the inside and from the guest as collect any collective ownership. Because whether we like it or not, we have trained consumers to think already that they have some type of ownership within the space. And so if they're going, if we're going to continue that pattern right? Then why not do so with a community buy-in that actually transforms the way that our communities look and operate? Yeah, I hope that answered. Yes, it does. I could not let you go without just a couple more questions. So I came across your work on the internet. For me personally, nothing you share is confronting or activating. It's for me, my interpretation of your work is it's considerate. It's so generous in how you educate and or over educate, you know, like you, you really start at zero a lot of the times and build it up for folks who maybe don't have as much 
background and what you're sharing about. But I couldn't help but notice that people seem to get riled up. Yeah, I I think it's because, you know, one of the things that has kept hospitality from growing culturally, it's a shame when you compare us even to the tech world. It is a shame. It is embarrassing <laughs> the some of the operations and systems that are still present in the hospitality industry. And a lot of that has to do is because many laborers fiercely fight it. And that fight is not because they don't sometimes understand that these things are happening, but I think it comes from constantly being told that their jobs aren't valuable. So when I'm critiquing it, sometimes people can't differentiate of the fact that I'm not saying that hospitality isn't valuable. I'm saying that it is valuable, but this thing that is happening within it is unacceptable and harmful and is one of the things that exhausts its labor force from being able to maintain and stay within the industry. Um, I also think that, you know, I am a Black woman. And I think many people think that because I talk about race, gender, and many other things in their intersections with hospitality, that it must be personal, that I must have had a bad, a super bad experience. You know, I get that all the time. Oh, you must have had a shitty, you must have got fired from your job. And the reality is, Google me. I've had an excellent career. (laughs) It could still be going if I wanted it to, you know, like (laughs) in a traditional way. Like, but I think that, I think that's some of it. And I think uh, some of it is also a lot of people want to overinterpret what you're saying rather than just sit and listen to what you're saying. They want to go, they start storytelling, right? Like I had an incident a few, like two weeks ago, that was so strange to me. Someone tagged someone in my post and said, you know, what do you think of this? Which often happens. And if it's someone and I look at their page and I think what they're doing has cross-section, I'm, I generally, and anybody who follows me knows this, I'll ask questions. I'll be like, cool, yeah. Like, why did you think that? Even if it's different or why? Da, 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 da. And this person responded as they were like, I didn't know that I was going to be questioned and and be expected to give like a reasoning behind my, because their response was like, came off as dismissive, but I was like, I don't know this person. So maybe they're not being dismissive. I want to try to understand. Right. Um, Because again, I don't know them and this is the internet. So let me ask a question so that I can gain clarity. And they just it became this whole thing. And finally, I just blocked them because it was clear to me that one, they were projecting a story that wasn't true into the space. I was genuinely approaching with curiosity and their inability to, one, I have learned this over time and and I've said this forever. A lot of people really struggle with being questioned. A lot of people take question like take questioning and they automatically assume that it's in bad faith but a lot of people also have this tremendous fear that maybe they will be asked to be accountable for what their analysis opinion may be and as someone who doesn't really have that fear who I have been openly called out about like on a stage about you said this and da 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 and people have had beef about it and I've had to be like okay, and I still agree with that, or no, I don't, you know, and yes, and this is the why, reasons why I agree with that and and had to work it out. I find that people are more committed to being right right, than, than knowing. 
right? And I think also people think any type of engagement or questioning of there is an attempt to change their mind. When for me, as someone who is really into collecting data, you know, just about kind of not even in like a major way, just like sometimes I ask questions and I'm generally trying to get a general feel about like where people are, but also I'm trying to get an insight into your processing about this. The issue is that I think people respond to me because most people have been able to go through social media operating with it's casual. And so because it's casual, I don't have to be intentional and I don't have to be intentional to with my words. Not only do I not have to be intentional with my words, I don't have to be accountable for who to whose page this is. Because not only is hospitality a major third, third space, the other third space of our lives is social media. And on social media, people get to act a fool and an ass without accountability. And so when they come to a page where they say something and someone goes, either I'm setting a boundary and we don't speak like that on my page and it's inappropriate and I'll block you. Or they go, yeah, please explain that. And they and they aren't able to, they get frustrated. And what I've learned is that that's a projection that's about them. That's not about me. Because at the end of the day, one, it's my page and it ain't a democracy. <laughs> Two, if you operate where every every questioning of what you say is a, and there's a difference, right? Like I have people question me where I know it's disingenuous, right? And, th- and that's different. But also I will still often answer those and be like, I'm going to take this in good faith and I'm going to answer it like this. But I think the issue is that so often we don't leave with what our intentions are and we don't even think about what our intentions are in social ma- media. And it ends up in a lot of messy conflicts that could be avoided. And it, and I, because it's shorthand, people also make a ton of assumptions, right? I, knowing that communication has always been something that I've had to work on and I try to do it well, but sometimes I don't. And sometimes I miss cues and things like that. I try to give a lot of grace for how people communicate as long as they're not being disrespectful, right? I try to work with them. But I also question people because I'm asking you to reflect on how you showed up. Like I had someone on a post that I made, which I posted the references and they were like, I've never heard this, da, 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 da. And I said, am I responsible for the fact that you've never heard this? How about, thank you. (laughs) I've never heard this. Thank you. I've never heard this. Are you sure? Like, and I was like, their references are in, in the, I was like, so I'm not sure what you want me to do with it. And suddenly, because there's someone in the industry, they were like, yeah, I engaged on our page. She was really shitty to me and blah, blah. And I had to approach them at an event and say, you're not going to storytell about me. I wasn't shitty to you. You came on my page where I had given you more than enough resources. And you were upset because I asked you a question that called you in to ask you if the way that you were casually and dismissively speaking on my page was appropriate or if it was about you. And I think that this is, I think one thing is also that often just as a society in America, we communicate as if it's one directional. We communicate at people with no intention about the response or the type of communication we're trying to form. So often I will have people start whole communication in my DMs. And when I don't respond, get upset. 
but you didn't invite me to a com- a conversation. We don't know each other. This is a parasocial relationship that you are trying to buy in. I, I, I had that recently where, where someone was like, at the end was like, well, I was just trying to have a conversation. If you want to live in an echo chamber, then do it. And I said, I don't want to live in an echo chamber. I don't live in an echo chamber, but I don't know you. This isn't a community. People telling you that they're creating online communities are not being honest about the dangers and the repercussions of acting as if social media can be a supplemental kind of area of life outside of your in real life. This isn't a community. This is a page where I post where I want and I engage with people. I cannot, community implies reciprocity and support. That is not something that's being created here. And content creators who lean into that assertion are dangerous. I said it. (laughs) They are dangerous. They are part of the reasons why we have so many people who are struggling with mental health issues because they are reliant on individuals who don't actually know them. And I think that because I set a clear boundary that I'm not, I'm not your friend. I don't know you. Right. People get upset about that. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I, I honestly, if that's because I've had, even with all the boundaries I've set, I've still had individuals try to create these parasocial relationships with me. And I've gotten some crazy DMs of, or crazy emails. I've had to block people. I've had, you know, I get my information swiped from the internet. I pay a yearly fee for it because I have had people send me gifts. Right. It's, it's, it's truly an issue. And I think also I am not a, what I, I'll also be honest. I think another piece of sometimes people bristle at the way I communicate is because um, I'm very straightforward. You're direct. That's why I like you. There's not a lot of fluff in it, you know? And I think that people assume because there isn't fluff that I'm being rude. And the reality is that's still a conversation about them. Thank you. (laughs) You know, it's still a conversation about them because why do I need to create, go bend over backwards to insert all of these niceties to make sure you understand if we're communicating off bat, I should get the, the assumption of good faith until I do something that's, and another thing that's always straight to me is if I mean to be disrespectful, I'm going to make it abundantly clear that I'm disrespecting you. You, you don't, you you will know, you don't ever have to guess. You You don't ever have to guess. And if you ask me, I'm going to say I meant it. Yes, I said that and I meant it. And I think we're back to some of the other themes of the conversation of assumptions around how people should act if they're feminine, if they're black, you know, what race they are, what gender, on and on and on. This is another thing. The way that we have... Basically, America has corporatized and whitewashed activists and advocacy and education, right? Is that if you if you do it, you need to be inspiring and nice. And I'm sorry, we're living in a fascist state. 
if you need everything to be sugar-coated for you, I'm not saying people shouldn't go out of their way to be mean. No, I don't think people should be mean. I think that that's awful. But if you need everything to be couched with comfort, which is, that's what it's really about. It's about comfort. It's about wanting to feel unchallenged by the content being given to you. And I... And I'm just not, I'm just not for that. The reality is, is that every privilege is a check that someone else's ass is, is cashing. There, there can be, and we talk about privilege and oppression in this way that people think that these are, they're just these little containers and compartments unrelated to one another. These things are interdependent. They are relying on one another. If your ass is receiving a privilege, it's because the check is being cashed by someone else's ass. So I don't have time to comfort you when I, as someone who believes in, you know, trauma-informed care and harm reduction, I have to center the people who are being harmed, which means not centering your comfort. And I think nowadays we have gotten to a point that social media has become such a place where people get prime, most of, they supplement it for all of their knowledge and education that they've- And relationships. And relationships- that they, again, they lean into these parasocial ideas that you have signed a social social contract that you never promised them. I could talk about this forever. I wanted to end on your interpretations, you putting this philosophy into practice in your life. And that is one of love ethic. Yes, hooks, bell hooks, the late, the great. Be amazing. I, when I really started saying that I want to intentionally transform my life and the relationships within in it, I really went back and read a lot of books. And Hooks was someone that I read a ton of. I re- reread all her books, but I went to All About Love. Because after what I realized is what I was longing for in my life was knowing love and being secure that I did know it. And what I realized is that how much in trying to understand and know love that how critical it is in every part of our life and how we show up, you know, and not only how we show up, but how we just take up space and breathe. Right. And what I realized is that I wanted to transform from a muted person, right, a person who was always trying to mute, mute their anger, mute their emotions to, to be appropriate Right. And what I wanted to show up with was as I hate the word authentic, but what I wanted to show up as a present person. And the only way to show up as a present person is to have an intimate awareness of not only your body, but the processes that you use to move through the world. And you can have all of the intellectual processes you want. At the end of the day, there has to be something else, not driving you, but creating ethical boundaries of the way you move. And they can't be legal because legal doesn't, in my in my opinion, doesn't properly encapsulate the way that we should treat each other with humanity, right? And it can't just be based off religion because religion, frankly, doesn't encapsulate the way in which we should afford each other humanity. And we love to talk about community and love, but we don't love to define it. We like to make it seem like it's in, innately you know it. 
innately you can be, innately you can be loved and someone will show up and the one will know how to love you. And of course your family loves you. You just, you, you're thinking too hard about it. You just know it's not a knowing, it's a practice. It's a discipline. It's a presence. What I realized, because all things, the way my brain works is I like to break things out. So like how, you know, Bell Hooks kept talking about this love ethic and I literally went through the book and started being like, so how do you build one? And that really guides the way that I move through life. It's the thing. And when I say move through life, it's the thing that makes me question. My love ethic is what makes me question how I'm moving. Right. Rather than an assumption that I intuitively always move in ways that are gracious and humane. The reality is I, too, have internalized white supremacy culture and homophobia and transphobia and anti-blackness and all of the isms that come with being someone who was born and raised in this country. And so it is, too, even as someone who experiences and on the, is on the receiving side, it is, too, my job in order to question if the way that I am moving is in concert with the way that I want to be free. And the way that I would like to see others free. And look, I tell people, the, the thing about being human is you can be amazing one hour and be trash the absolute next. The only saving grace is that you have the ability to try to switch it up that next hour, right? And so that doesn't mean that I'm always successful, but it means that I have enough of a, I have enough of a process to at least ask. And so for example... A day in the life of a love ethic. What might that look like or feel like for you? One part of my love ethic is having a explicit practice of asking people who I love what they need and how they feel love and how they want to be supported. Um, I can't say that I want to know love and then not ask the people around me how they want to know love. So that's super important to me in terms of having a love ethic. Another thing that's important to me to, of having a love ethic is that I ask myself if I am able to be loving in the situation, in the container, in the room. And if I am not, what are the steps and boundaries I need to take so that I can be? Right? And sometimes that means not going into spaces. Because the actions that's going to show up there can't be loving. And so the most loving act that I can do is not go. And sometimes that loving act is having an uncomfortable conversation about, hey, I got to set this boundary. Right? So I think it looks like that. I think it looks like reminding myself that the ways that I feel in love now don't need to be the things that I feel in love tomorrow. And that I am, it is okay for my, how I receive love to expand. That I'm not betraying anyone or myself by changing the way that I want to know love. I think that's a really important one for me. And then I think asking myself if my boundary is about my comfort or if it's about my safety, because I think sometimes we can hide behind boundaries and they're not actually boundaries, they're walls because we don't want to do the vulnerable work we need to do to be healthily in space with others or with ourselves in certain containers, right? And so 
Yeah, that's that's a really important. So, but I do something every day. I use your journal. I use your journal every day. I've really been enjoying. I've really been enjoying it. It's been great. I have an app where I record kind of how I'm feeling throughout the day. I check in at least two, but sometimes three or four, depending on what's going on. And I love being able to review the month and look over it and say kind of like what's going on. And, and then I kind of record kind of like how am I not just how I'm feeling, but kind of like where's my head at, you know, in terms of. I used to do a thing where I picked a word a day. And I love that. That word kind of guided me, right? Um, right. And I still do that sometimes when I'm like wake up on a funky in a funky mood, and I'm like, "Are we tired? Do we just need rest, or are you? Do you just need something to focus your energy on so that you can shift?" So yeah, and I think I think for me, a love ethic is is past the interpersonal. I guess I should make that clear. It expands to naming explicitly who our community is. I think a lot of people are lonely right now because they unconsciously know they don't have community, but I'm willing to have the explicit conversations about what, how they could have it or why that is lacking in their lives. Um, so, I, you know, that expands the community and your community is a spectrum. It's the people who hold you down in really hard times is the people who you have, like there's a range of different communities and I think explicitly knowing those is really important. There's a something that me and one of my friends are doing, but I try to push my other friends to do is create basically a network card. Like a lot of times people you love, you'll have an emergency card, but everything isn't always an emergency. Sometimes it's a need of a check-in and, you know, a friend of mine's just like, Ashley, you are so good at knowing when you're not the person to check in with that person, but reaching out and saying, Hey, I think you should check out, you should check on them, you know? And so I, me and a friend, we sat down and we each created these kind of network charts that aren't about emergencies, but about, but are about certain types of check-ins and just kind of about like who was in our network and who, who who could do that work, who would we like to do that work if they have the capacity and like why those people and things of that nature and the ways in which we can create even further safety containers for ourselves outside of emergent like emergency needs. I love all of this. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Where can everyone interact with your work more? Right now I'm at the collections, but I will have a website soon. So just follow me there and I will be launching a website. So you will be able to engage with me there because I really want, you know, I really want to offer you guys more stuff. But Instagram is not great and playing a lot of games with me lately. So that's where you can find me. And uh, yeah. So good. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's our show for the week. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you enjoyed it. It was an honor and a pleasure both to get to conversate with Ashton and also to have you get to hear it. Truly, truly, truly. You can find Ashton's work in the show notes. You can follow her at The Collectress on Instagram. Again, go to our links to find all things Ashton. And we will be back next week. Until then, be good to yourself and be good to one another. Bye-bye.